Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy Legislation Podcast. This is Joy Mason and Triago, Managing Director of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. We are the only professional association that combines all aspects of data and cyber governance for the governance, risk, and compliance professional. You can find us online at adcg.org. It gives us great pleasure to host this event led by two outstanding moderators, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. Jerry is a founder of Buckley LLP, a national financial services law firm based in Washington, D.C. Prior to entering private practice, he served as minority staff director of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Jody is CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC and chairs the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. We have some really great guests lined up today and in the future, so please be sure to rate us and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. This is Jody Westby, CEO of Global Cyber Risk and advisory board member of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance, known as ADCG. And I'm here with my fellow advisory board member, Gary Buckley, who's founder and partner of the law firm Buckley LLP. Welcome to another segment of the ADCG U.S. National Privacy Legislation podcast examining the question of whether there will be an effort in the next Congress to establish national privacy legislation across the U.S. Today, we are joined by Martin Stassen, a partner at the global law firm of Kroll & Mooring. Martin is based in Brussels, so he brings us a real international perspective today. Martin, thanks for being with us. You've spent several years helping companies handle cross-border data flows and manage privacy compliance issues. So we thought it would be very useful to have a conversation with you as the U.S. looks once again at the possibility of national privacy legislation. Your experiences with businesses in these areas surely provide some useful lessons learned in sites that can be leveraged in the conversations regarding possible national privacy legislation. So just to set the stage for our discussion it would be helpful if you could briefly provide a high-level view of what the EU compliance landscape has looked like from the Data Protection Directive in 1995 to the EU's adoption of the General Data Protection Regulation. And when you're giving us that high-level view, could you please note areas that were particularly problematic or burdensome for businesses? Yeah, thank you, Jody, and, and thank you, Jerry, as well, for inviting me and for giving me indeed the opportunity to, to share my thoughts on this topic. So indeed, there's some, some lessons learned from, from how the legal framework was in the European Union and how it has evolved uh, since only a few years. So since 1995, as you mentioned, there was the European Data Protection Directive, which provided a framework within which European member states could enact their own national privacy and data protection legislation. So there was indeed a European-wide approach, but it was a scattered approach um, with different legal requirements, but also in terms of uh, interpretation of the rules and quite importantly, of course, in terms of enforcement. So in countries like Germany, France, Spain, you had very proactive and strict regulators, while in other EU member states, data protection compliance wasn't really an issue for companies. And in fact, I noticed it myself because I have both a Belgian and a Spanish law degree. And when working as a lawyer in Spain in the beginning of the 2000s, 
I noticed how privacy and data protection became a boardroom topic, while in other countries like Belgium, for example, this wasn't really something that kept the C-suite awake at night. And so it was mainly because of, of the enforcement in, in Spain. The main difference was because of that enforcement, because in, in, in Spain, for example, the regulator could impose fines and regularly did. So in fact, um, big but not huge fines, 60,000 euros, 300,000 euros, which is about 70 to 350,000 dollars. While in Belgium, the regulator didn't even have the power to impose fines. And so these differences in approach, interpretation and enforcement made it very difficult for international companies to build a comprehensive privacy program. That all changed with the General Data Protection Regulation, the, the so-called GDPR, that was drafted to provide a more harmonized approach across EU member states. And indeed, it is a regulation and so no longer a directive. And so the main difference between those two is that a directive provides a general framework but requires EU member states to enact their own implementing legislation while a regulation is indeed directly applicable across all member states. So yes, indeed, a more harmonized approach, for example, on the possible fines, which are very high and that cost privacy and data protection to become a boardroom topic in all EU member states this time. That's really interesting. I don't think we could have a podcast in these days of remote working without having the doorbell ring or a dog bark. So I apologize for that interruption, <laughs> Jerry. That, that was a great that was a great start, though, an overview for us. And uh, Jerry, I'm going to pass this to you. Well, thank you, and uh, and welcome again, uh, Martin. And thank you for doing this uh, podcast. Your description of the evolution of the GDPR is very relevant to our own experience in the United States, where we're probably, uh, while we have laws in the books, we're probably more in the diverse standards model of the directive as opposed to the more universal model of the GDPR. And I note that the GDPR became effective on May 25th, 2018. In the two and a half years uh, since its effective date, have things gotten easier for companies in meeting EU data protection requirements in terms of understanding what their responsibilities are? Yeah, uh, has it become easier to comply? That, that's a very good question. Well, yes and no. Uh, yes, because companies can indeed take a European-wide approach, uh, for example, by following the guidelines of the European Data Protection Board. So we do not have, um, and that's one of the main frustrating things for many regulators, is that we do not have one single European regulator, but we do have the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, where all the national regulators come together to ensure the intended harmonized approach to provide opinions, guidelines, recommendations, and best practice. But, but so there's not one single regulator that, for example, can, can impose fines. So there's still differences between member states, for example, on requirements to designate a data protection officer or DPO, the age for children's consent online, sensitive data, etc. So it's harmonized, but not entirely. And also these guidelines, they're not binding. But hey, it's the point of view of all the regulators and therefore of each and every single one of them. So it helps when building a European-wide or global compliance program to look at these, these guidelines. You know, in particular, I'm thinking about cross-border data flows and meeting the member state requirements. How's that working out? 
Well, that's indeed one of the, the the big issues these days. I mean, it's very challenging for for international companies, and, and quite frankly, the the biggest risk at this stage because it's a truly uncomfortable position to be in because of the legal uncertainty that was that was created. So it really throws us back to a pre-GDPR situation and makes it even worse. So let me, if I can, just recap briefly what happened on the front of the international data uh, transfers. So the 1995 directive made it made one thing very clear. Huh? There's a free movement of data within the European Union. But if you send the data outside of the European Union, you need to think twice. And you should only send data to countries that provide, provide a so-called adequate level of protection, so the so-called adequate countries. So after 95, the US did not get such adequacy decision, but got a tailored solution that was specifically for the US that was not foreseen in the 95 directive and it was called the safe harbor framework. And in short, organizations could self-certify that they complied with EU data protection legislation, which would make it possible then to send personal data from the EU to that particular organization. That worked well for around 15 years until it was challenged before the highest court and the court invalidated the framework in 2015, so pre-GDPR, and companies could no longer use that framework to send data safely to the United States. Then the United States Department of Commerce and the European Commission came up with a more refined framework, which they called the EU-US Privacy Shield. And in short, organizations could self-certify that they complied with EU data protection legislation, which would make it then possible to send personal data from the EU to that particular organization. That worked well for a few years until it was challenged again before the highest European court, and that was, and the court invalidated that new framework in July of this year. So what is important about this specific judgment and why is this therefore the challenge for companies is that the court imposes an organization to assess the legal framework of the country. So not the commitment of the receiving organization, but the legal framework of the country that these organizations are based in before deciding to send the data, which means that international companies are now between a rock and a hard place when they want to transfer data to the US because they need to assess whether any country, but including the United States, has an adequate legal framework when there is a decision from the highest European court that says that the US legal framework is not adequate, is not sufficient. So that is really what makes it challenging and what keeps international organizations awake at night. I can imagine, and your reference to the fact that uh, you found in Belgium a, uh, a new commitment at the board level to understanding privacy issues following GDPR, can, I think, be extended internationally in light of the activities of your EU Court of Justice. And it does leave a question, which I hadn't signaled to you beforehand, we might ask, but uh, it does leave the question of, really, don't we have to harmonize data protection on an international basis someday? Yes, that would indeed be the ideal situation. Of course, uh, there are already many jurisdictions and con countries looking at the European Union. But of course, the fact that here the protection of the privacy, but also data protection is a, a fundamental right, which means that it is at the same level as the right of not, not being tortured or not, be, not being discriminated. That is the big difference with many other countries, and that that's why it's so challenging to come to the or to put it on the same level for for many countries. But that would be ideal. I agree. Could you address the uh, standard contract clauses provision 
and uh, they haven't been updated since the days of the Data Protection Directive. With the invalidation of the U.S. Privacy Shield program by the uh, CGEU, uh, do we have any hope that there would be a better set of SEC forthcoming? Could you yeah. think about that? The standard contractual clauses, that, that's indeed um, often considered the next best thing or, or at least the most straightforward solution for, for data transfers to the so-called inadequate countries. So, and yeah, just to have everyone on the same page, so what it means is it, there's two companies that sign a template agreement. So you cannot really change anything except for the description of the data and, and, and the, the specificities of, of the transfer. And it's an agreement between a data exporter in the EU and a data importer in a non-EU country where they commit to comply with EU data protection law. And there were indeed template agreements issued in 2001, 2004, and 2010. But still, and despite of the GDPR entering into force, they still have not been updated and they still refer to the 95 directive. And the reason, or one of the reasons, is that the last year the European Commission is, in fact, has been waiting for for the outcome for the for the Schrems II uh, decision, uh, the, the one that invalidated uh, finally the EU US Privacy Shield, as that judgment could also affect the validity of the of the clauses. And in fact, it, it did. Uh, so it does affect it because even if you use standard contractual clauses, you still need to make the assessment of the legal framework of the importing country. And um, what we do know is that the European Commission and the Commissioner, Mr. Reinders, has communicated about that previously. They're still on track to deliver the updated clauses before the end of this year. And one of the main changes that we expect is that the clauses will require not only to describe the technical and organizational measures that have been taken, like it's right now, but also more specifically the need to describe the supplementary measures that have been taken and that are imposed by that Schrems II decision of the European Court. And perhaps even apart from the description of those measures, the assessment that has been made of the legal framework of the importing country. So it will no longer be like it's right now for many companies downloading a template, signing it and go ahead. The focus will be more on accountability and on being able to demonstrate that you've done the thinking, that you've done your homework. It is going to be a significant challenge, no question about it. Back to you, Joey. Well, that's really interesting uh, because it has been frustrating for so many businesses dealing with the GDPR for the last couple of years and still having these old clunky standard contract clauses. So you're right, it's going to be a flurry once the new set comes out because everybody's going to have to look at them and update them and take appropriate measures. But then there's also that pathway to binding corporate rules. But that's difficult. I mean, it takes years for companies to get binding corporate rule approval. Do you see that as being streamlined or simplified even into something that may be obtained in, let's say, one year instead of a multi-year effort? Do you see binding corporate rules as a streamlined pathway or will it pretty much stay the way it is? Well, I'm afraid that the process won't be easier, mainly because of three things. Just before we start, perhaps one a step back, that the binding corporate rules are only for companies uh, or within uh, data transfers within the same group of companies. So, so it's not for everyone. Um, right. First of all, the, the three things, I think, because of what the EDPB, so the European Data Protection Board, said after the Schrems II decision, they say whether or not you can transfer personal data on the basis of BCRs, it will depend on the result of your assessment, taking into account the circumstances of the transfers and the supplementary measures that we mentioned before. So even data transfers covered by 
binding corporate rules need to be reassessed and, and regulators might have to be involved again. So more time. Mm-hmm. Secondly, binding corporate rules is seen as, as, as the most solid solution indeed. And that means that there have been many requests, but the regulators don't really have enough resources to cope with, with the many requests. And this combined with the fact that the BCRs approved before May 2018, so before the GDPR, had to be adapted to the GDPR, which meant additional uh, work for the authorities. And thirdly, and and also important, is is the fact that roughly 20% of the BCRs uh, that were approved before uh, the, the GDPR were approved by the ICO, the regulator in, in the United Kingdom. And all these BCR holders have to identify a new lead DPA, so new lead data protection authority instead of the authority of the United Kingdom before the end of the Brexit transition period, which is the end of the year. So again, a lot of work um, and also for the regulators involved. Yeah, oh boy, you're right. You know, in the United States, we've had a, a lot of focus in the last year over data subject rights, especially with the CCPA that gave a private right of action, but the CCPA provided more data subject rights than our privacy laws had previously, but certainly not as many rights as the GDPR affords people subject to that regulation. So it would be helpful as we look at and debate this national privacy legislation once again in the U.S. to know what are some of the consequences of data subject rights that are granted under the GDPR. For example, have they resulted in burdens for business? Are they actively exercised over there in the EU? Yeah, and and I expected this to uh, to happen much before. Uh, We saw um, when there was a case of the right to be forgotten and that that got a lot of press and then there were a lot of requests, but but typically to search engines. But now, yes, we see what we see is that there's what I call legal DDoS attacks. So as you know, a a technical DDoS attack is when there's so many requests to a certain website that it cannot cope with the traffic and, and it goes down. Well, with a legal DDoS attack, there's so many legal requests to a company that it can no longer cope with the requests or at least the department managing that. So we see companies setting up business models that are focused on sending GDPR-related requests to companies on behalf of individuals. And obviously, every single request is legitimate and and you can exercise your fundamental right. But if I talk to my clients, if I talk to the DPOs who spend their days, their entire career caring about the protection of personal data, I wonder whether this is the best way to to use their resources. Because, of course, the time they have to spend on that, they cannot spend it on building ways to to better protect data within within the company. So, because a data access request means, give me everything you have about me. And that might sound easy and straightforward on paper. But imagine, for example, a department store. You might be on CCTV footage. You might have a loyalty card. You might have bought something. You might have applied for a job. You might have worked there. And and so many good reasons to have data about you. But if you as a company, if your answer isn't complete, if you haven't covered all the areas, you have a big problem. Because as a company, you need to provide all the information that you have about an individual. And is, of course, challenging for the company and, and also for the DPO. And there's many risks as a company um, that you need to make sure that the person requesting the access, and it's also an important point, is indeed the person who owns the data because data ownership doesn't exist. I mean, this is the individual who is the owner of his or her data. And the biggest risk 
in this type of request is a data breach, is providing right. personal data to a person who's not the individual him or herself. And I have clients who, who are online companies. People can access the services, but they can also create an account online. Um, so there's different ways to interact with those companies. And so when you get a data access request, tell me everything about my usage of your site. Well, first of all, how do I know that it's you? without additional information like your IP address, I might not know who you are. And if you have an account, I still don't know you. And then you have the discussion about identification versus authentication. I mean, it doesn't make sense to ask a person who has an online account to identify him or herself because you cannot check their real life identity. So it's truly a big, big challenge. Yeah, well, you know, maybe the lesson learned there is that the impact on IT systems should be evaluated when the legislators are looking at these things. Because it's one thing to say, well, give them everything you have. But they don't consider the millions of dollars it can cost large companies to work these kinds of data rights into their IT systems. And even more, Joey, for the small companies that don't have the resources, but still have to comply, the smaller and mid-sized companies. Imagine what the cost to them and their ability to stay in business when they have to incur those costs. Exactly. But, you know, as we have these conversations, Martin, over here, when we have them uh, talking about a national privacy law, it's possible that some of the things in the EU that you've done could snap back on you. So in the U.S., consumers are really demanding more rights. And we saw that in the enactment of the CCPA. So I would like to ask you, how, how do you think European businesses would react if the U.S. passed national privacy legislation that imposed new data subject rights applicable to EU companies? For example, making EU companies subject to civil rights of actions from U.S. citizens or requiring U.S. Com- uh, EU companies to designate a representative in the U.S. or have a U.S. privacy officer. How do you think that would go over in Europe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. A very, very good question. I mean, I think that global companies in any case have, have long understood that there's no way back for privacy and data protection, that countries, as I mentioned before, are following the European approach. Legislation gets stricter. And some of them might think that indeed they are in good shape to address additional requests or similar requests as they can leverage all the work that has been done for GDPR compliance purposes. But That being said, companies obviously prefer a global approach. So the more specific to a certain jurisdiction, the more challenging it will become to to comply. Yeah, it will. Jerry? Well, Martin, very interesting points and lots of learning here for uh, U.S. uh, legislators who are considering the uh, enhancement of and creation of national uh, privacy standards. Uh, I'd like to ask you about enforcement and guidance. The EU Data Protection Board, the so-called EDPB, offers opinions and guidance. What is the difference between an opinion and guidance? Mm -hmm. Well, so opinions are provided to, for example, the European Commission, to supervisory authorities as part of what we call here the consistency mechanism. So to make sure that there's a, a solid harmonized framework while the guidelines, the recommendations, the best practices, these are provided to the organizations who, who need to comply to ensure. And, and it's so both is to ensure a uniform, harmonized application of the law. But one thing is the framework itself. And the, the other thing is, you know, the, literally the guidelines to the companies. And, and the EDPB is indeed crucial and perhaps the closest thing to having 
one single regulator. So that might also be interesting for, for the thinking in the US. Because um, you see that in the case of the invalidation of the privacy shield and, and the requirement to assess the legal framework of, of so-called non-adequate countries, these um, and the supplementary measures that need to be implemented, well, everyone is now looking for that guidance of the European Data Protection Board, which in their FAQ document that they issued a few months ago, which they promised to provide. So I would certainly recommend a similar to having a similar institution in the US because harmonization is important for businesses. Look at, for example, data breach requirements in, in, in the US. They're state-specific and how easy or at least how more helpful would it be to be able to take a one-size-fits-all approach uh, when there's a data breach. Yes, uh, you know, there is the question of getting the guidance before, and then there is also the question of whether guidance is issued after practices start to be implemented and people say, well, I'd, I'd really like to find out whether this is okay. That uh, is the guidance primarily generic guidance or is it given to individual companies uh, after, or a number of companies if there's a serious request for guidance? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, so the, the guidelines are general, so not to specific companies, but the guidelines are really, uh, they have very specific examples uh, in it and, and real, real life examples. One of the first guidance documents, for example, on, on data protection officers really explains um, the risks that a company could have when you are not obliged to have a data protection officer, but you would still call your privacy officer a DPO and what it entails. But also in the recent guidance on consent, there's very specific examples of when consent is required or when another legal ground um, uh, can be sufficient or I wouldn't say sufficient because there's legal grounds that are much more solid than, than consent. So, so, but the EDPB guidelines on a, on a general level, if you want to have very specific uh, guidance, the best way or one of the ways that companies are using is when you have um, you have to carry out a data protection impact assessment, which is an assessment of the risks and how how you will uh, address them. When there's a high residual risk, you have to go to the data protection authority and to ask for their input and their guidance. Similarly to if you want to transfer data as a consequence of the SHREMS 2 decision, that when you have the feeling that you cannot implement sufficient uh, supplementary measures, then you also need to reach out to your data protection authority. That is at the, that is at the where you have designated your presence. You have a designated data protection authority. So you go to your national authority for that type of guidance. Is that correct? Correct. So you need to choose a lead data protection authority, which is whether the country where you're based or where you have your main establishment, or if you're not based in the European Union, but the GDPR does apply, then it's um, the authority where most of your uh, data subjects, so the people whose personal data you process, are located. You know, it is fascinating to think of the learning we can get from what is really a work in progress in the GDPR process, but uh, at least you're some step ahead of the United States and there's learning to be gained there. Now on enforcement, the enforcement of the GDPR, would you talk about that and about the, the various jurisdictions uh, you've indicated that you pick your, your principal regulator in a place where your company has most of its uh, data subjects, but where, uh, how does it work in terms of the various, I guess, 27, 28 uh, jurisdictions within the EU? 
uh, in terms of enforcement. So it, it's indeed. So there's uh, also the, as part of the the consistency mechanism uh, when there's several when several data protection authorities are involved, and that means when there's individuals of, of several different uh, EU member states, they need to, um, uh, to to also come to a common opinion or a common view on enforcement. And so it does indeed create an issue for companies because there it, it, it again, having a data protection authority in every single country gives the opportunity to take a slightly different approach on every DPA has its own strategic plan, has its own focus points. And we see, for example, now in Germany, in, in, so in Germany, it's, it's even more difficult or challenging because every state, eh, all, all the lender, as they call them, eh, they have their own regulator per state. And some uh, regulators typically are in, in you know, specific industries, so the focus points are, are, might be more specific. So they don't have a single regulator in the entire country. And now there's a discussion on, on whether there should be more centralization. And obviously, there's pros and cons. Yes, there's harmonization when you have a more centralized data protection authority, but you also have the experience in, in the US with the FTC, for example. But um, if the if the issue is really limited to one single state, I think, you know, about local business with local customers, you might prefer a, a more localized solution that you really know what the issues might be and and and, and how exactly they, they, uh, the data protection authority of a specific country acts and reacts and what the risks are when, when you need are challenged or when there's an investigation from one specific data protection authority? You know, uh, we look at the GDPR as a union-wide standard, but we all know, and you as a lawyer and I uh, know that the the law is made uh, in individual cases uh, and the precedent is established by enforcement actions. While there is this umbrella of GDPR, it sounds like Europe will be dealing with many of the same uh, balkanization issues that we are going to be confronting in the United States. You mentioned of industry-specific regulation uh, in Germany uh, brings to mind our own industry-specific regulation. You mentioned of the various states within the uh, German uh, Federation uh, and their having authority brings to mind our uh, various states having their uh, individual uh, systems, and particularly the attorneys general in each of our states having the authority to enforce. So it, it is still, it sounds like, something of an issue on both sides of the pond. Yeah, I, I agree. It will continue to be. But, you know, it all reminds me of when the Data Protection Directive was implemented, it was a huge international trade crisis in the U.S., of the EU saying you can't bring data here unless uh, you have adequate protections. And so then, as Martin told us, they did first the privacy shield. But now when we go back to the invalidation of the privacy shield, though, and some of the people I've talked to, I see market impacts from that decision. And it worries me that we're not, that we're about to have another international trade crisis as companies start saying, well, you need to just keep your data in the EU or using these regulations as a way to uh, have balkanization for certain industries. Do you hear anything about that over there? Do you hear in Europe companies thinking about uh, rethinking where their data transfer flows and, and how to d handle these situations? Absolutely. I think the impact of, of, of a judgment like that 
cannot be underestimated. Companies are rethinking their data strategies. Years ago, companies were talking about big data and, and, and that was the big thing. Now for me, big data sounds so 90s. It's, it's no longer about big data. For me, it's, it's more about smart data. It should be more about smart data. And with legislation such as the GDPR and judgments such as the, the Schrems 2 decision, data are no longer an asset, but they have become a liability. And so companies rethink their data retention practices. Should I really be keeping the data if it only increases the risk? And, and not just the regulatory risk, but also the cybersecurity risk. Data that is not there can just not be hacked. So companies rethink their identity and access management practices. Should, should the entire company have access to that database? For example, HR data, should such data be sent abroad? It makes sense if there's an international reporting line, of course, but, but should it always be accessible? So companies are also rethinking their data sharing practices and, and cloud providers, as, as, as you mentioned, are indeed giving answers. Uh, they provide the opportunity to keep European data within the EU, which is, of course, something that the big players can provide and, and EU-based startups. But, you know, I mean, obviously there's an effect in, in the market for sure. And so Schrems 2 forces companies to think about which supplemental measures, such as end-to-end -end encryption, etc. So absolutely, the, the impact uh, cannot be underestimated. Yeah, it's certainly going to be the end-to-end -end encryption market. We're about out of time, and before I hand this back to Jerry, I'd just like to thank you again, Martin. This has been really helpful and insightful, and we appreciate your time. Jerry, let me hand back to you. Certainly, and thank you again. I'd also just like to join in saying this has been a very informative podcast, I think, an episode, and I think it will be something that uh, our listeners uh, and I hope uh, some of our listeners will be those who are formulating U.S. privacy policy. But it'll be something that our listeners can grab onto and begin to understand the complexities that even the most advanced of the sectors of the globe, the European uh, Union, uh, are grappling with. So, Martin, thank you so much. Uh, look forward to further conversations with you in the future. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on U.S. national privacy legislation. Make sure to visit our website, adcg.org, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in what you heard today, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast, that would help us out too. Also, you might want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Data and Cyber Governance Alert, which you can do right on our homepage. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode where we dig deeper into the possibilities of U.S. national privacy legislation.